welcome to the World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the challenges we face, the impacts they are having on society, and what we can do to help solve them. Hello, and welcome to this episode of World We Got This in Conversation. You're about to listen to a conversation between PhD candidate Gloriana Rodriguez Alvarez and David Mumbari, lecturer in African Security and Leadership Studies at King's African Leadership Centre. Gloriana's research takes a deep dive into the gendered consequences of drug trafficking and the subsequent war on drugs across Central America. Her background in human rights and law meant she came at the issue of insecurity from a different angle to most. Whilst other research focuses on militarisation, she looked to the human impact, asking how the development of states and institutions perpetuate the social prejudices and injustices impacting marginalised communities. Gloriana's not only completed two PhDs, but as part of her second PhD, she spent weeks in Guatemalan prisons, interviewing inmates as part of her research into drug trafficking. She shares some of her insights on what not only makes you a good researcher, but an empathetic one. So let's hear what she has to say. Well, uh, thank you very much um, and good morning. Uh, today, I have the pleasure, the distinct pleasure to say, to have a conversation with Dr. Gloriana Rodriguez Alvarez. Is that the correct way of pronouncing your name? Yes, that's perfect. Thank you very much, Dr. David Mumbari. <laughs> Well, Gloriana, um, you know, we have this amazing opportunity uh, to have this conversation uh, about your research and I would say about yourself. Um, so the first question I will say is, uh, could you uh, tell our listeners uh, something about yourself, uh, just generally where you come from, uh, you know, and, and what you're about uh, as, as a human being? Well, I would just say, I, I guess briefly, that I'm, I'm from Costa Rica. So that has obviously influenced a lot of my worldviews and a lot of my aspirations. It's a, for those who may not know, it's a tiny country. It's directly north of Panama and we're between much larger countries. We're between South America and towards the north we have the U.S. And it's a tropical country, which during the winters in England, I really miss that, the tropical sun. Um, so I always joke that I have to bring a bit of the tropical sun in a jar to keep me warm and happy through the winter. Well, I can be assure you, you are not the only one to miss the warmth in this, uh, you know, uh, part of the world. And uh, my question is, uh, Gloriana, when we have interacted before, you have told us something unique when it comes to security about uh, your country. I think you are one of the few countries which does not have, a, is it a, a standing military? Uh, can you tell us more about that just briefly? Uh, yes, um, so Costa Rica actually had a civil war in the 1940s and then in the aftermath of that civil war, the army was abolished and it was under uh, a president who was affectionately called Don Pepe Figueres. He opted to abolish the army and instead uh, use that money to pay the salaries of teachers. So he's fam he famously is quoted as saying our soldiers are our teachers and he invested in basically what we would now call human development because they invested a lot in hospitals and they invested in education. So uh, it's a semuglu, 
The Economist. He actually does an analysis of Guatemala and Costa Rica. And it's very interesting because if you look at the indicators at the beginning of the 20th century in 1910-1920, uh, Costa Rica and Guatemala are quite similar in terms of poverty, in terms of illiteracy, and in terms of infant mortality. But in the 50s and 60s, because of this decision that Costa Rica makes, it really makes a leap in terms of human development. And to this day, it has the higher human development indicators in Central America. And even within Latin America, it's usually within the top three, I would say, or top five. Well, uh, you and I again know that uh, you can talk about Costa Rica day and night. Uh, and, you know, and we always love to learn about new countries. But uh, let me now pick on another country you've just mentioned that I know uh, has something to do with your research, uh, Guatemala. Um, would you kindly tell us more about your PhD project that I believe you're about to complete or you have already completed? So I think my PhD project um, is it's about Guatemala, but it's also an issue that affects Costa Rica, and that's mainly the, the war on drugs, the issue of transnational drug trafficking. And I should point out that this because I'm Central American, and Central America happens to be between the countries where coca grows naturally, thus where cocaine is produced, and the biggest cocaine consumer is uh, the United States, followed by the European region. So we're in the route of drug trafficking, what has been called the corridor of cocaine. And as a result of this, we've had a rise of drug trafficking and with it, violence and crime. In the case of Guatemala, it has also led to mass incarceration. And that's because in this context of crime and insecurity, a lot of Guatemalans want you know, the former status quo to be restored. They want there to be less insecurity. They want there to be less crime. They, they want the, there to be less violence, which, by the way, is, is understandable. Sometimes people get into essentialist interpretations of why a country is the way it is. I should point out that most research shows that when there's a time of insecurity, people tend to gravitate towards more authoritarian leaders. And in the context of Guatemala, that authoritarianism resulted in increased policing and the use of the military for internal civilian issues and in harsher sentencing. And what I think really piqued my interest, especially in Guatemala, is that that mass incarceration has a very strong gendered dimension. So throughout Latin America, the Organization of American States has pointed out that within the past decade, in many countries, the, the female prison population has doubled or tripled. In the case of Guatemala, it has quintupled. And, you know, these are alarming uh, incarceration rates. So I wanted to understand exactly, you know, these complex issues, something like transnational crime, public policy, which ultimately has had very gendered consequences. And I think part of what drove my research was that I should point out that the policy itself isn't specified, you know, to target women. You know, it's not saying let's send women to prison. And yet, despite the fact that that wasn't the public policy design, by default, that became the outcome throughout the region. Well, uh, thank you very much for uh, explaining us about the topic. Briefly, before I ask uh, uh, the, my follow-up question, I just remembered you are one of the unique people, one of the few people in the world who actually have the intellect and the energy to do two PhDs. Can you tell us about your first PhD first? Before we continue digging deep into uh, your research, please. Well, yes, thank you for that. I should point out it's also because I've been very lucky that I have the family support 
I have had, I, I would say the community support. So it's not just me, you know, doing two PhDs, but that's also a reflection of how lucky I have been to have had the support and the encouragement from tutors, you know, both at the ALC and in Costa Rica. But yes, my previous PhD analyzed another issue that I care about deeply, which is the issue of human rights given widespread ethnic and cultural diversity. And I think in Latin America, this is a very big issue because the whole human rights doctrine is very Western in the way it's been articulated, in the way it's been developed. That's not to discredit it, but rather to contextualize. I think it's important to understand that. And we have in many countries, we have a lot of indigenous peoples, and I want to add a plural on that, who have their own epistemic worldview, who don't necessarily adhere to this more, you know, individualistic uh, worldview, because human rights is very, like, even the term human rights, it's your right as an individual. And when you're dealing with peoples and nations where there may be a more collective vision, where there may be different epistemic visions, they may feel alienated by the human rights doctrine. The priorities established by the human rights doctrine may not reflect the priorities that some of these indigenous peoples have. So I did my first PhD on Bolivia. And the reason I chose Bolivia is because in 2009, Bolivia established a plurinational constitution. And they said, okay, we accept the state, <laughs> you know, which is there. Like we're acknowledged as a Western construct, but we want a state that is inclusive and we want to decolonize the state. And this for me was very exciting because I think in academia, we're hearing a lot of people talk about the need to decolonize the curriculum or decolonize a specific theory. In Bolivia, they really are trying to decolonize state policy. So it's not a theoretical conversation. It's a very practical conversation, you know, and what does that entail? If I'm going to decolonize the justice system, and by the way, they now have in the Supreme Court, they have a secretary for the decolonization of the justice system. So what does that mean? What does it entail? How can I develop, you know, if especially something like the law, which is supposed to give you standards, how can I make standards that are inclusive? If by its very nature, a standard establishes a principle and it's going to say this is acceptable, everything else is not. When you have competing values, different moral systems, how can you decolonize that legal system? And well, I spent almost five years researching Bolivia, trying to see how they arrived at their conversation, because that's what I would call it. I think Bolivians themselves would say they don't have the solution. What they have is the conversation, and that maybe that's the answer. And it's still a very, um, there, there's elements of it that, that still hasn't been resolved. They're still trying to articulate what that implies in that specific context. And I have to paraphrase what one Aymara activist told me, that maybe the grandeur of Bolivia is in recognizing the importance of having these conversations about diversity, about inclusion, about addressing historic injustices, and realizing that they're not easy conversations to have. They require inviting a lot of people to the table who are not going to agree with one another, who are not going to get along. But in that cacophony of voices, that's where we find the answer. And that's where we can create a society that is actually inclusive. So in that regard, utopia is maybe not necessarily a place, but a cacophony of voices. Oh, how enriching. I am sure somebody somewhere will listen and start crafting a new research question uh, to build on your research. Now, I was doing a bit of research area when I knew this conversation was coming up, and uh, it looks like your 
thesis, your second PhD thesis has a title of authoritarian followers amid structural insecurity and the resulting mass incarceration of women in Guatemala. Now, and then you came to do this PhD uh, with the uh, supervision of Professor Fumiol Nishakin at Africa Leadership Center at King's College London, where you use the leadership framework. Uh, can you tell us more about uh, your choice uh, to join this department and to choose uh, the kind of supervision that you chose uh, to work on this project, please? Yeah, so I actually chose this department, I would say, because just, you know, when I was researching to see where I applied to go to do this type of work, I actually, I would say I fell in love with the ALC's vision because, first of all, they see it as security and development. So it's leadership with reference to security and development. And for me, that's very important coming from a region where for a lot of the individuals, security translates into military or militarization. And the human element is left out of it. Human security is not part of the equation. And the issue of development is also left out of the equation. So it becomes this very militarized vision of security and it's portrayed as a morality play. So there's this assumption that, for example, someone commits a crime, it's probably because they have some character defect without analyzing all the structural issues, all the lack of opportunities that may play a factor in why that individual uh, resorted to drug trafficking, for example. So I think just that seeing security and development really made it exciting for me. And the issue of leadership, I would have to add, it's because Oftentimes, when you're dealing with post-conflict societies or developing societies, very often the focus is on strengthening institutions. And that's something as someone who has worked in the human rights sector and in the development sector, you get told a lot, especially because my background is in law. Oh, the problem with the justice system is it needs to be stronger. It needs more funding. And I would acknowledge there's some merit to that in some contexts. Again, I should add in some context because this is always contextual, but I don't think we should necessarily just focus on state building or institutional strengthening, which I think seems to be the modus operandi of much of the development sector. And the reason being is that we have to also question what type of states we're building, what type of institutions we're strengthening. In the case of Guatemala, for example, these are very exclusionary institutions. In fact, the entire criminal justice system, really what it does is magnifying the pre-existing social prejudices and the underlying social injustices. And I would like to add that this isn't just like a, an issue that is being faced by Guatemala. In fact, I would even, I think sometimes in a lot of countries in the global north, you see this as well. Um, and I would use the United States and also the, United, the experience of the United States with the war on drugs, where you have a criminal justice system in a developed country that is strong, that is well-funded, that is independent, and yet we see time and time again in the case of the United States that the criminal justice system results in racialized mass incarceration. So what that tells me is that the criminal justice is not serving its purpose. We have to dig further to understand what are the underlying dynamics, what are the underlying leadership and followership dynamics. So much of my thesis is trying to understand why an institution is going to perpetuate social prejudices instead of mitigating them or addressing them. And that's where the issue of leaders and followers comes into play. 
sometimes when we have leaders who maybe don't articulate, how should I say, when they sometimes articulate a very exclusionary message, like in Guatemala, the case with Jimmy Morales, or in the US, the case of Donald Trump, or in Brazil with the case of Bolsonaro, a lot of the focus becomes on just kind of almost seeing these men and say, oh, the, they captured the public attention. When I, in my thesis, I argue it's the opposite. I think these men in many ways are a, first, I want to emphasize men. <laughs> uh, second, they are a symptom of an underlying social conversation that is happening. It's the followers that uphold these leaders. And without these followers, these leaders would just be very unpleasant individuals. But because they have followers, they arise to positions of power. And then the institutions reflect those power dynamics. Oh, that is absolutely enriching. I would say that I would like to learn something more about this leadership framework, especially when you start talking about followers. Uh, but just to be clear, uh, so your PhD is in leadership studies with reference to security and development, which is you've explained very well. Um, now, previously, when we've talked also, um, you've discussed some of the approaches used to collect data and how intense it was. Do you, you know, you, you've been to jail, you've been to prison uh, for research. Uh, that's not something uh, many of us are able to, to say that they have done in their career. Can you tell us more about the challenges and the opportunities of doing uh, this kind of research in such a, I would say, uh, yeah, a context that is, that is sensitive to most of us? Huh? Yeah, so going to jail as a researcher is actually... It can be very hard, and I should add voluntarily. I think it's important to put, make that point that I've been to jail, yeah, several times in several different countries, but voluntarily uh, for research purposes. But indeed, I think in, especially in countries where there may be a, bit, a little bit more of an um, authoritarian tendency or where there may be insecurity within the prison system, it's harder to get access as a researcher. So in Guatemala, I, I will be honest, there was one point where I was very anxious about going to prison. And I even asked my grandmother, because she's very Catholic, I said, would you please light a candle so that I can get into prison? And my grandmother said, yes. And then she added, why are you so strange? But she did it for me and it worked. Um, because, you know, I had to keep going to the Ministry of Security. I had to show them my questionnaires. You know, academics, they want to have complete access to the population. But when you're working in these high-risk areas, you may have limited access or the access may be arbitrary. You kind of have to play by the rules. That's what I would say. Um, so from the get-go, I assumed that I was going to have like a, a guard next to me when I was doing the questionnaire. So I, I was prepared for that. I should add, though, that what was hard was getting access. I think I had to present all the papers five times. Um, some people have told me that that could be because of internal disorganization or because they do it as a way of dissuading people from doing research. I did have to spend like a month where I had to go almost every day. Like, hey, can I have a, can I go to prison yet? Can I go to prison yet? By the end, the guard and the secretary both knew me and they'd be like, hi, you. And then finally, when I got access to prison, I was very excited. I got a permit that said which prisons I could visit. And once in prison though, I should add, in the case of Guatemala, I thought it was very interesting. I didn't have a guard accompany me. So I was actually allowed to interview the individuals one-on-one, -on -one, which I'm, I'm glad because you always, you know, the quality of the interview is going to change. I went to the women's prison and usually women's prisons are considered safer 
Then I went to the men's prison, which was interesting. I think the men's prison, you see that they're not expecting women. And I think I realized that when I asked to go to the bathroom, and like, oh, okay, we have to escort you to the men's bathroom. Um, so there isn't even a woman's bathroom. And I think that shows you like how that space is constructed. And what that also means for, because I was interviewing transgender individuals. So for transgender individuals, they're in a space that's constructed for, it's a very male space. And there's absolutely no accommodations made for gender diverse individuals. Raichurad Guatemala does not recognize transgender identity. So transgender women and gender diverse individuals are sent to the men's prison where there's no accommodation. There's no women's bathroom. Even I experienced that. And for safety issues, you know, that I had to go, I had to be escorted every time I went to the bathroom. So I think that was the only time when I was like, ha, huh, maybe I'm not in the safest place. Um, I'm very lucky that when I was there, there weren't any, you know, there weren't any riots. There wasn't anything of that nature because when that happens, they do shut the prison down, even if it's like a minor riot. But in my case, I felt safe most of the time and, and people were actually very nice. Prisoners are always happy to see someone who's not within the prison system. Well, thank you for sharing that story. Uh, you know, how far do we go to study certain topics? And to especially, you know, get a hold of those stories of the people we almost want to exclude from society, from conversations. Uh, yet, you know, even if they are so-called uh, criminals, you know, um, I think there is just a lot of more conversation to be have on this topic. Uh, but also, before I go very far, you are a researcher. You are a human being. Uh, therefore, experience all sorts of things. Before we leave the prison story, can you just touch on that romantic story that happened? Uh, when somebody escorted you and they thought, you know, you might potentially face danger? Uh, just for researchers to know that sometimes we do find partners who actually, you know, also like what we do. If you don't mind sharing that, you know what I'm talking about. Well, I, I think I know what you're talking about. Um, when I was doing prison research in Costa Rica, that's where I met and fell in love with someone else who's very keen on prison research and he's now my husband and we actually bonded while carrying out interviews you know and and I I actually have a very vivid memory of you know because he was always trying to improve the methodology you know he would always, because whenever you do a questionnaire you're always trying to think oh how can I improve the questions do the individuals understand the questions is this question sensitive enough maybe there's something missing and he was always taking notes and I remember one day, like I was sitting in one cell and I looked across and I saw him, you know, across in the other cell. And he was very attentive, trying to improve the questions. And I actually, you know, and he became famous because this was, and the reason he became famous is because we were in a women's prison. And if you're a man in a woman's prison, trust me, every, all the women talk about you because, oh, there's a, you know, there, there's a man here. And and one of the women actually made a point saying like, oh, you know, she was like, no, I'm very happy to be interviewed by you. She's like, we all know you're nice. She's like, although I though she's like, I like the one with the glasses. She didn't say I like the man. She just said I like the one with the glasses. But I knew who she meant, even though there was a woman wearing glasses. But I, I was like, and I asked her and I said, um, you know, why do you like the one with the glasses? And she said, because he's very empathetic. And I want to say that because I think that's also something that when you're a researcher, a lot of times people talk about the importance of being rigorous, the importance of being meticulous, the importance of worrying about the safety, if it's a high risk uh, individual, the safety of the person you're interviewing, your own safety. But I sometimes think we don't talk enough about empathy. 
And for me, as someone who's done prison research with individuals who are very marginalized and stigmatized, oftentimes before they were incarcerated, and then once they're incarcerated, all of that worsens. You know, these are individuals who sometimes exist in very bleak circumstances. So that importance of empathy, of the human connection, I think is something that doesn't get said a lot, um, or doesn't said, get said un enough, both in academic circles, but just in society at large, like the importance of empathy and of having that human connection and of really being in that moment and listening to the person and bonding with the person. And I think for me, that's part of what drives me to do prison research and drives me to do prison reform. And part of the reason why I had that romantic moment, because I realized, ah, with this person, like we're dreaming the same dream. And I think for me, that's very important to find other people who are dreaming the same dream as you, because that strengthens your commitment to actually carry out the dream and to fight for your own ideals. Oh, that story. I think that book chapter we call The One with the Glasses. I <laughs> love that story. Uh, well, you know, um, as we think of uh, the world we are in today, uh, you know, where, you know, really we need more empathy. Uh, that is really a good point to emphasize. Uh, I, I wanted you to imagine speaking to an older researcher, you know, who needs a moment of renewal, uh, you know, to go back to doing research in different places, especially after the pandemic. Um, but also imagine speaking to a young researcher who just, uh, you know, a career researcher who just started their journey of doing a PhD or a master's thesis where it involves uh, going to difficult contexts or even other kinds of contexts. You know, what are some of, let's say, two tips uh, can you give them? They don't have to be things to do. They can just be maybe ideas to reflect on. Building on that idea of empathy, I think that's one all of us can take. Uh, you know, and I really want it to be addressed to all kinds of researchers because we always like to think about our career researchers as if even those who have been doing the work don't need to renew intellectually and, and find new approaches. Um, so no, what can we think about uh, as we do this kind of work uh, in different contexts? Well, I think my first tip would be um, the importance of conversations. And maybe this is just because I'm also a very talkative, very chatty Costa Rican, so it's a way of justifying the way I exist in the world. But um, but no, seriously, I would actually say, because even with me, now that I'm, you know, when I was doing my second page, I would have this, you know, sometimes people would say, oh, you already know what you're doing. And I would say, no, 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 <laughs> I'm still learning. And I learn from the theories, but I know I learn a lot from conversations I have with other individuals. And it can be conversations with, you know, in my case, my tutor was Professor Oloni Shakin. So obviously that, you know, that um, the feedback I would receive, but also from other PhD students and just from other students in general from math, because I would audit courses too when I was doing my PhD and the type of comments they would make, the type of questions they would ask me about my own research really almost helped me solid, solidify my own ideas. And I, and I want to stress that, the importance of conversations, because I think a lot of times in academia, the emphasis is on seeing research as this very solitary endeavor. So you're almost like, you know, the, the hermit in the library doing theories and taking notes and debating with people who've written books. But in my case, I know for me, any type of research is always really based. It's always a bit more collective. 
it's always based on conversations. Conversations with people who have a lot of experience, conversations with people who have no experience researching, and the type of the type of comments, the type of insights I get from them, the thought-provoking moments I have, because they might make a comment, I'm like, oh, that's, that's, you know, and that's always guided my research. So that, the importance of conversations. And I think the second tip I guess I would give is to also just trust yourself because I think a lot of times we, we might also second guess, you know, oh, how do I do this? Can I do this? You know, the whole, it, it is important to believe in yourself. And I know some of the research I've done, there isn't necessarily a protocol, like especially when you're doing prison research, there isn't really a protocol for going to prison. Um, and it can sometimes be a, a chaotic place. So you also have to start trust your own instincts and know that the type of research you're doing, if it if that's what drove you, that you're there for a reason. There are certain questions that you're supposed to have asked. There are certain things that you're supposed to observe. And I would say have, you know, have faith in that, that you're there for a reason and and let that guide you and observe and you'll arrive at an insight or a conclusion that is that is needed. Oh, fantastic. I really like what I hear, especially this point about the community where you do your research, not just about your supervisor, not about, it's about the colleagues you work with. It's about, you know, the other PhD students. And at King's College London, we are obviously very fortunate to belong to a university and a city that is very global indeed. And so you, you are constantly, you know, um, you know, thinking in different languages and crossing boundaries of cultures and, and truly embracing the other. Um, you know, I, I really like these points uh, that you are making uh, that, that we should remember. Uh, and the African Ship Center also, we have a very rich community of PhD students working on different topics. And of course, we are very happy to have you. Now, to conclude, whenever I do interviews, I always like also to put uh, somebody in a place of, of power, not me just asking questions. Do you have any questions, anything else you want to reflect on that I did not necessarily raise? You know, this is the way the conversation happened. Uh, it was planned, but it doesn't mean that I want all the questions. So you can raise anything else, any comment, any feedback, you know, um, as as we conclude. For me, I have really enjoyed having a conversation as always. Yeah, I think I just want to add to the last point that you made about the importance of both being in London uh, in, at King's College London at the African Leadership Center specifically, is that I would say that if you are in a place where you have the opportunity to talk to someone whose experience is different from your own, always do that. And I know for me, being at the African Leadership Center, I think I've had the opportunity of meeting people who's, because they come from different, they have different life experiences than me, they come from different countries than me, you end up having this cultural, this intercultural exchange. And you learn about the epistemic beauty of another person's worldview, and you get to share your own. And I just want to just say, in general, I always advocate for that. So I wanted to make that point. Um, and I guess in question, my question would be for you, uh, since you are a veteran researcher and you've <laughs> led a lot of projects, you know, what advice would you give to the rest of us or maybe starting out or at an earlier stage now that, you know, you're now you have this, you've acquired greater wisdom than us? Well, thank you, uh, Gloriana. I didn't expect the question to be turned back, but since I offered you the mic, I must do the honors. Uh, my advice is uh, not to give advice uh, to, to anybody. It's just to give a reflection that people who are interested in research should be interested in other people's ideas. So reading rigorously, 
about the context you want to research, listening, you know, with a lot of energy and a lot of intention, being intentional about listening uh, to the people you are speaking with, to the people you are learning with. Um, I think for me, that's a very, very important discipline. Uh, you know, learning about other people's works, which includes listening and reading and other things, but also when you go to listen to, to work with communities, listening intentionally um, and really, uh, you know, learning about their world. And that word about empathy, for me, that's what I take home today. Empathy, we need more empathy in the world. We need more empathy in the research. You know, we need more empathy for all of us. Um, so, gracias, gracias, muchos, uh, or do you say muchos gracias? Uh, I cannot remember which one comes before the other one. Uh, for taking the time uh, to speak with with me, to speak with us, all the listeners who are going to listen to this episode, it has been absolutely fantastic uh, to have a conversation with Gloriana. I hope it builds anybody who listens, it builds them positively, it leads them to ask questions and leads them to multiple journeys of being wonderful researchers like Dr. Gloriana Rodriguez Arveres. It was a pleasure to host this. You've been listening to the World We Got This in Conversation podcast with Gloriana Rodriguez Alvarez and David Mumbari. You can find more research from the African Leadership Centre on the King's website. Today's episode was brought to you by the School of Global Affairs, produced by Julia Stapowska and edited by Grace Harley.